picture the scene. It's election day. There's a buzz about town. The news is running the election as the main story all day long. Which party is going to win? But as you go to cast your vote, you can't help but wonder, what's the point? (laughs) (laughs) Does my vote make any difference at all? So voting is one of the key civic acts you get to perform as a citizen in a democracy. People extol the virtues of voting, remembering ancestors who fought for the right to vote. People like the suffragettes or members of the civil rights movement. And they similarly bemoan the lack of particularly youth participation. I know that we did a lot during the Brexit referendum. If more young people had turned out, things could have been different. Yeah. It's easy to care a lot about voting and feel frustrated by the attitude that individual votes don't count for very much. But equally, it's easy to see why people don't bother. With systems like first past the post, for our American listeners, that's where we break it into little areas and then Mm. the person who gets the most votes gets that seat. We don't do a kind of wider representative democracy. It's actually a lot like your system with states, I guess. States and their, what's the, the Uh, uh, electoral colleges. mm. It's like, it's like that, but way, way, way smaller. (laughs) It's Uh, it's a quaint British. Yeah, it's a quaint, it's actually how, I think they do first past the post in counties as well. So Mm. it's familiar to you. In constituencies of states, which always vote the same way. With systems like that, where people are always voting the same way in the same areas, again, very familiar to them. And looking plainly at the maths, your one vote in millions, it's very easy to feel like your vote just doesn't matter much. So welcome to a series on voting. In this first episode, we're going to answer two questions. One, is it rational to vote? Given the scale of elections, the probability of your vote making a difference starts to resemble the probability of winning the lottery, and which all economists will tell you, this is an irrational game to play. Yeah, I think it was um, Brian from Family Guy who said it's a tax on stupid people. (laughs) (laughs) And second, whatever the answer to, is it rational? We'll look at at a kind of deeper level, maybe there's more of a moral duty to vote as opposed mm. to, you know, some mathematical persuasively and uh, mathematically persuasive answer. Sorry, guys, we're mid coffee. This is fresh coffee. <laughs> I promise halfway through the episode, it's going to be it's going to be suddenly so much sharper. Yeah. Even if it's not mandatory by law, a topic that we will cover in the next episode, you know, should you by law be required to vote? Do you owe it to society to cast your vote? Or, or maybe do you owe it to yourself? Mm. So welcome guys to the Morality of Everyday Things. I am, of course, your co-host, Jacob. And I am the other co-host, Anthony, slash repeating guest. (laughs) (laughs) I have the logins, okay? I can do stuff. Um, I have the keys. Yes. So Um, it's a podcast about everyday morality, as is obvious from the name. Uh, we've been doing this now we've been doing this for almost two and a half years we also run a couple businesses thank you very much to uh everybody who leaves a review on spotify or apple Podcasts. it really helps people find the show uh the one thing that helps people find the show even more is when you share it and actually according to spotify we're in the top five percent most shared shows Aww. a lot of you sharing it in whatsapp and stuff that's very sweet uh, some other little spotify wrapped stats for you we are the number one podcast for 171 people it's funny because i feel like that's simultaneously amazing and impressive you imagine a room with 171 people and also i feel like we can reach more people I we, feel can. Like we can i think the more relevant stat is that there are 763 people for whom we're their top five in their top five podcast which in fairness it's not even my number one podcast it's my, <laughs> it's my number three so and you listen to a real mix most people do so, uh, if, if yeah. you think you're one of those 171 please feel free to reach out we're always happy to chat uh, recently we've been chatting with, with a, a listener fan. called mike yeah he got in touch to uh, um, suggest a question that we might tackle and, and just say that he really enjoyed the show i think what we'll do even for this episode we'll put a little calendly link because we're we're startup people <laughs> yes yes we're gonna we're going to refine we're gonna iterate on our product we want to understand either a calendar link or maybe a survey link mm. it's a little easier than booking we'll do both uh if you want to talk to us you'll be able to book a call with us directly and if you're willing to answer a survey and just tell us what do you like what don't you like should it be more scripted and prepared should it be more freeform chat between us you know what sort of topics do you find interesting which series did you enjoy do you enjoy series or one-off episodes 
these are the sort of questions we're going to ask you. Exactly. And Mike, we're looking forward to chatting to you. Although by the time this comes out, we will have spoken to you. So mm. thanks for a great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
vote, mm -hmm. right? That mm -hmm. would be an example. Like that's me expressing my conception of what it is to be a good citizen. It um, does. It does indeed. Yeah. And it's funny because you're right. It's almost like these humans are performing this act that doesn't really make yeah. sense. How do we explain it? <laughs> they seem to just like doing it. <laughs> Weird little things. Anyway. So you've already heard us say the probability of a vote being decisive is like the probability of winning the lottery, i.e. it's vanishingly small. In an election with millions of people voting, it's vanishingly unlikely that you end up casting a vote that influences the outcome of an election, that the election comes down to a difference of one or, or something similarly small. Mm. A single vote is like a drop in the ocean. And you've probably heard people say as well that if everyone thought that way, then nobody would vote. And this is a classic slippery slope argument, which generally philosophers don't like. Yep. Also, I think it's really interesting that as well as being, you know, a lot of philosophers say slippery slope, I think a lot of economists would talk about equilibrium, right? Mm. And also repeated games, which I thought Jake would like very much. I did, I about. love that note. It's, when you think about it, you remember we, we have regular elections, right? Mm -hmm. And they are non-independent, i.e. what happens in this election is heavily influenced by what happened in the last election, right? Both because we're conditioning on what we, what we want, but also what we think other people want, right? Yeah, I mean, think about the 2020 elections in America. I mean, it yeah. was a, exactly that. It was like, wow, Trump got in in 2016. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So people, you know, people change their behavior. So I, I just wanted to address really quickly, people, sometimes people make that argument, well, like, slippery slope, why, why doesn't anyone vote? It's because as fewer and fewer people vote, actually the value of a vote goes up. This is true, and that's the <laughs> equilibrium effect, isn't it? Yes, that's the equilibrium effect. Although that said, it's still like, it's the difference between not point not 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 one percent and not point not 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 one. You know, like it's a vanishingly small difference, but it's still perception of like ah, it's like my vote is more valuable, and it can again be expressive. Like I, it makes it even more expressive to say I am the person who turns up to vote when fewer people are turning up. Yeah, totally. Quickly, if you sort of know it handy, um, why is slippery slope a fallacy? What's what's going on there? Oh, just because it doesn't necessarily follow. It's funny because it is said to be like a logical fallacy, but. I guess it's one of those things where it's like, well, it's a heuristic and sometimes it does bear. I suppose there could be equilibriums where there's a tipping point and yep. then actually the dynamic yep. is slippery slope. And it's a logical fallacy just because it does not logically follow the, say there's a, a staircase, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you take the first step doesn't mean that you will go up the staircase, right? Mm -hmm. Like you could very easily just be like, nope, the first step was the right level. We're going to stay here. But if you right. Or you could even come back down. <laughs> yeah, if you fell down the top step, then... <laughs> yes, yeah, no, no, I, I, take, I take your point there. And then the other thing is, um, there's a name for this political effect. Sorry, I, I, when we're talking off the cuff, didn't realize. But we're like... Sometimes when you start to take these steps, it kind of drags the center of political mass mm. and then it also changes the discourse, which is more favorable to people who are further on towards the side that the center of political mass has been dragged. Indeed. So, for example, oh, you know, when you get Trump, like, you know, we don't just have Trump and then come back. It's dragged the center of political discourse to the further right. to the right. It's, mm -hmm. you know, there are more out there opinions that you now have to accept as like, quote unquote, acceptable that we have to actually engage with, mm -hmm. which then makes more fringe ones like things that were ridiculously fringe are now just a little bit fringe. Yeah. So like there is, don't get me wrong, there's some sense to the heuristic of slippery slope, mm -hmm. but it is technically a logical fallacy. Like it's not inevitable. And I think the reason why it's a fallacy in the case of voting, you've answered well, is because of the equilibrium effect that as fewer people vote, mm -hmm. votes become more valuable. Yeah, and therefore, yeah. you will never hit a point where just everyone gives up voting. So like, oh, what's yeah. the point? You'll reach the point where it's like, actually, you know, my vote matters even <laughs> yeah. more. And, and So I just remembered a really funny anecdote. Mm -hmm. um, do you know what they call the slippery slope in Arabic culture? I do not. They call it the camel's nose. <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, because they're long and sort of ski like? No. <laughs> it's just saying, it's, it's kind of like if you have a Bedouin tent, right? Mm -hmm. You can't let your camel stick in even its nose into your tent because soon you'll have a camel in your tent. <laughs> <laughs> quite like that. Yeah, that's quite good. Anyway, uh, back onto the, so we were talking about instrumental theories, we were talking about expressive theories. Very quickly, we'll tackle instrumental theories as a reminder. That's that you vote to change the outcome of an election. 
Bear with us, here's some maths. Uh, hopefully this will translate over audio. The instrumental model says that the utility of voting, i.e. what you as a citizen get out of the act of voting, that is equal to the probability that your vote makes a difference times the actual difference the outcome causes. So for example, if you're a Democrat and the Democrats get elected, how much better off are you if they're elected than if the Republicans get elected? That's the difference. So probability of your vote making a difference times that difference minus the opportunity cost of voting. Right. That's your expected utility. And in this model, because the probability is small, because it's hard to assign a quantifiable value to the difference between who gets elected, and because the opportunity cost is almost always higher, the maths basically never adds up. Yeah, I was going to say, I think one thing that's really interesting to consider here is if you actually think about, so for example, uh, the philosopher Francis Fukuyama and mm -hmm. his uh, essay on the end of history. Mm. Uh, and he just kind of talks about how like, you know, there used to be even 100 years ago, 50 years ago, if you think about our political discourse, there used to be kind of much bigger political decisions at stake right mm -hmm. whereas nowadays we've kind of reached what he would describe as you know the end of history history being with a big h not a little h meaning you know political history of man not like individual activities <laughs> that are happening you know now actually okay yes we talk about the big differences between democrats and republicans but ultimately it's all liberal democracies and it's really more about tweaking fiscal policies and stuff right and don't get me wrong smaller they, they, variations yes yeah, don't get me wrong those are you know big lived differences for the people in those countries and it can have huge knock-on effects decades down the line i'm just making the point that like 100 years ago it was like hmm should i vote for the fascists or the communists <laughs> right like, there, was, there were very very different political ideologies at stake whereas yeah. now yes like the outcomes for people's lives and stuff will be different but like the real difference between these things is not huge which mm. has a big impact on this um on this ca calculus we're doing i think the overriding thing by far is just the fact that like the probability is so small it wouldn't even matter if it was voting between you know a utopia and hitler because mm. if your probability of impacting the outcome is not point no 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 you know so many, so many zeros like <laughs> it just it, yeah it's practically zero right like yeah. it's a rounding error the one thing that can sort of caveat that is that the model of course it's mathematical it makes some assumptions and it therefore misses a couple of things because your vote could influence others to vote which increases the probability yep. of your vote making a difference yep yep it might benefit you in other ways encouraging you to become more politically aware and active and that's a sort of utility that you can gain which yep, kind of yep. links to the expressive theories we'll talk about yeah next. that's more expressive than instrumental that's the thing what it's basically saying these caveats is that the utility function misses other benefits yep. other utility that you derive from yeah, the yeah. act and i guess that's a nice segue into talking about that tell me about this uh, brexit tangent you you wanted to discuss oh the brexit tangent i mean you in the context of what you're saying about Fukuyama, it's not as relevant, but it's just saying that Brexit had a clear cost. It's become more apparent in the passage of time. Hmm. And the I idea don't know if I would argue it had a clear cost. Because even now, the cost, like, what's the cost of Brexit? It's like, well, first of all, what's the time frame you should measure it on? Because right? yeah, a lot of Brexit people will argue like, no, no, no. Like, of course, it's going to hurt for the first decade. But in five decades, mm. you know, when we have all this freedom to do whatever it is they suppose that we're supposed to do, that's going to be so valuable. Um, <laughs> there was a great FT uh, piece. I, I think it was a, a video piece where they're basically talking about like for, for, the, for those UK listeners or US listeners who are vaguely interested in the UK, you should be. You know, it's, it's a major economy. It was. Yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's... Um... I remember you sent this video and it was like 28 minutes on yes. the cost of Brexit. And then we said, and what's the summary of the video? And you said, it, it hurts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Well, the, the main thing is here, like now, it's just, it doesn't come up, right? Mm. Uh, and I think there's a few political incentives there. Like one, the, the ruling party are the ones who, who voted for it to happen mm -hmm. or, or kind of led the vote and et cetera, et cetera. So it's not popular to discuss. Mm -hmm. uh, a second one is, is to be fair, a legitimate one. Like at this point, what's the point in proving how ineffectual Brexit was? I just couldn't see a political will to, to reverse, reverse the it. decision. Because at this point, 
once we brexited rejoining the eu is probably just as costly it's just as costly yeah it's, yeah. it's going to be another five ten year process and we'll have lost all the like special positions and privileges like at this point it's I actually think, despite the fact that it's costly, it's probably better just to get on with it at this point. It is already now a yeah. kind of sunk cost. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. And it's that sort of British stiff upper lip to the situation of like, yeah. do you know what? <laughs> yeah. Let's just, just get on with it. And... It's just funny that we don't acknowledge it. or Because yeah. then we could also probably make policies that are better targeted at the, at the issues around it. Anyway, sorry, carrying on. We also mentioned mandates. Uh, I think mandates are very important. Again, it kind of links to that idea of Rousseau's political uh, general will, which is not very well defined. For those who aren't familiar, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, very interesting dude. He actually kind of fell into philosophy because he responded to an essay competition. Really? Yes. Yeah, he he, he traveled around a bunch. He was like a tutor in uh, slash, I think, someone's like lover in Italy for a bit. <laughs> he He's kind of from that... Uh, oh, he's from Switzerland originally. He's mm-hmm. he's part of that kind of mythical mid-millennia mm-hmm. time in, in Europe where, you know, aristocracy gallivanted around, spoke five languages mm-hmm. and didn't really do much. And, sort of flaneured. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but one of those people who actually had a brilliant mind and managed to use that to turn it into amazing things. That's cool. Um, I think one thing that's really interesting is, um, in contrast to Hobbes, he very, very famously posits that humans are, are naturally actually very happy and social that mm-hmm. like you know the idea that human life outside of political construct or a, you know dominion under a political construct is nasty brutish and short he's more like no humans are or would be naturally you know together and happy and, and actually the thing that we should be doing is to try to be more in touch with nature not less and hobbes anyway. basically was like everything will descend into sort yes. of rule of the jungle right yeah exactly yeah. Uh, and everyone everyone would just you know fight each other and be selfish and actually that's not how humans have existed in history we were tribal mm. we're, we're social but he talks about this conception of the general will. He talks about the idea that like we should basically follow, you know, by, by all kind of putting our opinions forward, collectivizing it and seeing what kind of comes out. We kind of get an idea that's for the best for all of us. Mm-hmm. I often felt like, and maybe this because I didn't know it well enough and I also haven't like refreshed myself on it that well at the moment. It never really seemed to kind of well explain how you're supposed to deal with the general will colliding with your opinion being mm. different. Right, I don't know. If it, it sounds it, a little bit like Plato's ideal of like you'll eventually hit a sort of common truth. And yes, that yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't um, account for when people don't agree with you. No, no. But I mean, sorry, just take that concept and then think about mandates. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we often say that like, oh, there's a strong mandate to do this. Right. And by contrast, something like Brexit, where it was a 51, 52 percent vote, we say it's a weak, ba- a weak yeah. mandate. So mandates generally. Uh, Jake, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you wrote here? Well, I was just going to say, mandates are basically, they provide the argument for why should you vote if your party's going to get in anyway. And it's it's the idea that, yeah, contribute an extra vote in that situation. It's still beneficial because it strengthens yep. The, yep, yep. The, the will. The and the same, way, the same way that voting green, mm-hmm. for example, could still be worthwhile even if you don't think they're going to get in right mm-hmm. uh, first of all there's a feedback like next election like people see oh other people are actually bothering to vote for these people i'll bother mm-hmm. uh, but then it also says hey like these people do matter they have like people are supporting them and it also helps to you know say for example someone like the green party or, or you know independent parties in the US, u.s smaller parties when people do actually vote for them it gives credence to the argument hey the current system is actually not serving everyone because there are clearly people who want to vote for other parties. Mm. Even in the situation where these two parties clearly are going to win, mm-hmm. there are still people voting for other parties. Imagine if they actually had a chance through a different system that was like more representative or something. So there's something quite appealing about the idea. Apparently, political empirical science hasn't found much data that electoral mandates really exist because ultimately whoever gets into power just kind of does, does what they want to anyway. But I could buy the sort of feedback loop for future elections. It's the repeated it's... game suggestion you made earlier. And yep. I think there's something, I don't know, there's something intuitive about that. There is, yeah, there is. 
That's the thing. When I think of mandates, I think more of repeated games and less of... I think it's more about feeding information into the future and less about, like... <laughs> to, uh, well, to be fair as well, I think there is also... Again, this isn't mandate as in, like, you have a duty to do it more, but it also communicates more, like, say, for example, say you're the, the right central party, right? Mm -hmm. And you see that the left central party has got more votes, mm -hmm. right? That will change your political decision-making, right? It will make you realize, oh, actually, we're, you know, generally you want to capture as much of the political mass as possible. We seem to be drifting away from the center. So we need to think like we shouldn't be doing fringe right policies mm -hmm. because actually we're drifting from the left already and we're losing voters there. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So that's we need to again, appeal to that audience yeah. to send us a signal. So maybe mandate speaks more in the kind of sense of like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and general will and, and, and conceptions like that and, and duties. Mm -hmm. Whereas we're kind of saying like the mandate is that the mandate theory is actually more instrumental than it is kind of moral or like philosophical, right? It informs future decisions. It seems to provide a nice link between the instrumental theories and the expressive theories, which we're just about to talk about. Because yeah. on the one hand, there is a kind of instrumental outcome, but it happens in the future. You're sort of pushing it forward. Yeah. On the other hand, the sort of the behavior that like creates the mandate is the idea of I'm going to express my idea anyway, regardless of whether it has an impact now, yeah. because it's you know it's, yeah, it's yeah. valuable expressively, but it also has a yeah. So it's, future yeah, it's benefit. funny. I get what you're saying. Where like it ends up being instrumental, mm. but it's different still, time horizon. Yeah, it, it's different time horizon, and still individually, it doesn't really make sense to do for instrumental reasons, right? Like yeah. yes, when millions of people turn up and start to vote for independent parties, it has an impact, mm -hmm. or or it you know is much more likely to have an impact over the coming decades. But was it individually rational for the people to do it no yeah yeah so it's kind of it's kind of like expressive becomes instrumental so let's talk about expressive theories now. let's do it i think expressive theories in many ways make more sense and political theorists tend to agree these theories say the act of voting uh, is an experience that you get something out of regardless mm. of the outcome voting encourages you to be more politically aware to express fidelity to a certain group or ideology which is a, a huge innate drive in humans right mm -hmm. you, you mm -hmm. want to feel part of something and this yeah. is this is the the best way to feel part of something and it also demonstrates your commitment to some cause again communicating something to yourself more than to anyone else mm -hmm. or to some extent someone else as well voters vote because they wish to bear the right kind of causal responsibility for outcomes even if their individual influence is basically it's zero. that same thing of I voted green. Yeah. They were never going to win in the UK, yeah. but I still voted green yeah. and, and that says something about me. And I came up with an analogy which you may hate, but you like analogies. But I feel like it's like going to a sports game mm. because as a fan, I never expect really that my presence in the stadium is going to make Charlton, my team, more mm. likely to win. I am one small voice. I may provide encouragement. Mm. Perhaps it's my crucial like shout at the right time, <laughs> yeah. but that's vanishingly unlikely. And if anything, my dad always used to think that his presence was cursed and caused Charlton to lose. So <laughs> <laughs> we go anyway because one, it's fun, which sort of fits the expressive model of like you're doing it for yourself mm -hmm. you enjoy the experience but two it is a kind of expression of commitment mm -hmm. to your team it's the same thing that's supported by the empirical finding that most voters they're ignorant about basic political facts but they go anyway because you know they vote because it's saying something about themselves it's a consumptive act rather than a productive one got you just gonna a little note i added here another way of talking about expressive theories and making them make sense because mm -hmm. ultimately you know as economists you say anything anyone does is rational the way of kind of tying these theories together is to say that the expected utility from voting isn't determined by political outcomes even on a long-term horizon mm -hmm. but from the other forms of enjoyment that you get from the process whether that's the idea the idea that you the idea that you're fulfilling a duty mm -hmm. it's funny that we kind of talk on meta levels like one where it's like oh people have this idea they have duties and now we're going to talk about do you have a duty <laughs> yeah that's coming up next uh, but yeah it's kind of factoring in those other things that yeah. you get from it i like that we basically threaded both theories by just expanding the utility function yes exactly nice work one thing which i you've probably 
been thinking this while we've been talking is um, one sort of piece of data that kind of corroborates this finding is, is what we were saying earlier about most citizens suffer from an intergroup bias and we're saying humans are naturally tribal. We tend to automatically form groups and then what that leads is to us being irrationally loyal and forgiving to our own group and irrationally hateful of other groups. And that's why the expressive theories kind of fit the data, because you'll have people who turn up and vote Tory every time in the UK, yeah, even right. if they don't necessarily agree with the most recent policies. Tories are kind of like the Republicans, they're the centre-right party. Yeah, 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 exactly. Sorry, the Conservative Party, to put it formally or Labour. And similarly, you'll have people who are always Democrats and always Republicans, even if they don't particularly like the person who's standing. There's something sort of hateful about voting for the other team, yeah. the, the other party, sorry. Actually, to give you a funny anecdote to that effect, uh, mm -hmm. the current leader of the Labour Party is called Keir Starmer. Do you know why he is called Keir? Which is quite a weird name. Go on. I actually have heard the story, but you tell Oh, you know. You know. Okay, well, for, for our listeners' sake, geez, Jake, I'm sorry I'm so unoriginal and uninteresting. <laughs> I spent Keir, too much time with you. Yeah, that's it. Uh, Keir, I believe Keir Hardy mm -hmm. uh, was the founder of the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. Keir Starmer's parents named him after the founder of the Labour Party. God, that's um, like that Freakonomics thing about does your name have any sort of yeah, nominative <laughs> nominative determinism is, that's the, it, yeah. is the terminology. But it also kind of suggests like, you know, uh, not to say that he's not a fantastic guy. He's very interesting. He actually spent a very long time as a uh, barrister, like a lawyer in courts uh, for the government. So basically prosecuting murderers and, and pedophiles and stuff like that in those kind of big high profile cases. Uh, so he wasn't always a politician. In fact, he's a sir for his legal work, for mm. his political work, as in he was knighted by the queen. In but some respects, that makes him an excellent sort of shadow leader because mm. he just holds the ruling party to account so exactly. well exactly yeah he's excellent at the well he's good at like the incisive kind of cross-examining but yeah not great at the kind of charisma and stuff anyway interesting then because you know was he born into an intergroup uh mm. bias situation like you know he was literally named after the labor party yeah, you, you could see how he was kind of brought up in a kind of situation where he had no choice but to kind of support that group kind of almost religiously that is quite funny so to wrap this episode up because having said at the beginning we'll do a two-part thing on rational and then moral duty we'll probably split them now into two episodes because it's been a bit of a while we've been talking a lot sorry we've Go been on. we've been rambling but hopefully in an enjoyable manner to kind of bring this all together and to segue us into what will be the next episode we talked about the expected utility function and how if you define it in a way that includes the expressive value that you get from voting as well as the small probability of influencing the outcome the third part which feeds into that expressive element is it could be seen to be rational to vote if you feel like you have a duty because voting could discharge that duty and that could be something else that you factor into your utility function so that's another argument and that's that's a kind of nice place to sort of segue into what will be the next episode at this point then and what do you reckon is it rational to vote well i personally would say yes but not because i think i impact the election for all these reasons we're saying expressive part of that maybe comes down to duty like do mm -hmm. i feel especially as someone who studied politics <laughs> do i feel like oh you know actually maybe i have a conception of citizenship that requires you to vote even if turning up and voting is spoiling your ballot mm -hmm. right maybe yeah i think it's important to communicate your preferences and i also think to be fair one thing i will say is that Sometimes it kind of biases because if I, if I reflect on my own behavior, I change my voting behavior depending on how, quote unquote, how much it matters. Mm. So when I'm in a tight seat, I vote for one of the two parties who has a chance of winning, despite the fact I know my vote doesn't really matter. Mm -hmm. but, you know, OK, in, if it's a local seat, you know, it starts to matter more. You're getting to the hundreds of thousands and stuff. You know, I don't think my one vote will matter, but like it might be one of the hundred thousand that matters. Right. Mm -hmm or one of the 10,000 that matters in the local seat. So when it's tight, I actually vote practically. But when it's not tight, I do vote in an expressive, communicative way. I'd vote for a party who has no chance of winning, but mm. who more aligns with my own values. And I also wonder if I sometimes then even vote 
further in the direction that I'm to move the center of mass to move the center of mass right so like yeah sometimes if, if we're arguing over something and everyone's saying something take a scale of zero to 100 and everyone's talking about 15 percent mm -hmm. and I think it should be around 30 percent right sometimes it's easier to make an argument around 60 percent and kind of settle closer to my 30 like mm. you, you want to you want to be talking a lot you kind of say things stronger than you think just to kind of drag the mass mm. um but yeah no I, I certainly turn up because it says things about me to myself it says things about me to other people and also to be fair this is very biased because we'll probably talk a bit about gerrymandering and mm -hmm. voter suppression at some point in the coming series but like I don't suffer those things so for me it's a purely interesting exciting little activity to do in the day right like it's like ooh, i'm gonna go to my local library and you know, it's a fun novel experience yeah it's the one time every couple of years you get to go there yeah and i can't read uh, what, what about you i am as you know i'm a huge fan of game theory and behavioral psychology and these kind of things and therefore i mean i like what we've done here with the expected utility function i was gonna say i i, I really buy into the expressive theories i think it makes the whole process an enjoyable act it makes sense as well in the respect of you make a decision that's kind of it's expressing your belief and whether or not that has an impact now which you don't expect it to have mathematically it's still like you're saying it still affects the discourse in a tiny tiny way but yeah at least you're sort of signaling some intent and yeah. it's nice to be as well it's nice to have the incentive to be well informed about these things and mm -hmm. then we always debate them anyway so yes <laughs> yes we can always argue in our little echo chamber that we've now expanded to <laughs> Cool. Okay, guys. Yeah, we're going to, instead of doing this as a two-parter, we're going to separate this into one because actually we've spoken for a while. And next episode, we'll be talking about, do you have a duty to vote? And All then right. we'll kind of talk in the following ones about whether you should be able to sell your vote, uh, whether you should be legally mandated to vote. And if we have time, whether everyone should be allowed to vote. Mm, yeah. See you next time.